Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Our brains cause us to crave many things. It might be material like a new car. It might be an experience like a vacation. It might be advancement like a promotion at work. And of course, it might be a substance like sugar or alcohol. For too many of us, this craving can lead to addiction and we can begin to feel as though the addiction controls our very lives. Why do we become addicted to things that are bad for us? What do all addictions have in common? And how can we get back in the driver's seat in our lives and regain control over our addictions? Fortunately, I spoke with the right guy to answer these and many other questions you'll want answered. Dr. Judson Brewer is a world-class psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and a best-selling author of several books, including the one we'll draw from in this interview called The Craving Mind. Judd earned a doctorate in medicine as well as a PhD in immunology, and he is a professor at Brown University Medical School. He gave a TED Talk with over 10 million views on how to break a bad habit, and he's developed apps to assist people in gaining control over their craving minds. I'm confident you'll love learning from Judd as much as I did on this episode when we talk about our craving minds and how to handle them. Dr. Judson Brewer, who has asked me to call him Judd, welcome to Super Psyched. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm delighted. I loved your book about the craving mind and it causes me to ask the most obvious question, why does the mind crave things that tend to be bad for us? Well, more than that, it craves survival. And this survival mechanism was co-opted in modern day when people figured out that they could refine, engineer, and create things that addict us. That said, what do all addictions have in common? Let's start with a simple definition, one that I learned in residency which is continued use despite adverse consequences. And I like that definition, not only because I can remember it, but and my patients can also understand it, but it also highlights that this isn't just about cocaine or heroin or alcohol or cigarettes. This is about life. It's so much bigger than just substances. And so the one thing that I think all addictions have in common is this continued use despite adverse consequences. I know that sounds circular. That's part of the definition, it's but I think it, it can be illustrative in the sense that, for example, our smartphones can be really helpful. You know, if I'm driving in the Boston area, <laughs> I need my smartphone to survive. Otherwise, I'll never find my way out of the mess of small and winding roads. Yet texting while driving has been shown to be more dangerous than drunk driving. So here, when somebody gets addicted to using their phone, it can be really dangerous. And how is it that the same mechanisms that can cause us to be addicted to smoking, sugar, cocaine, alcohol, 
apply to something like a smartphone? Can you kind of describe the relationships that we cultivate over time that cause us to have continued use despite adverse consequences? Yes, I'd be happy to. And this also relates to another commonality. So all known drugs of abuse, and I will start to extend this as people research behaviors. This is probably the case for behaviors as well. All of these involved this dopaminergic mechanism in the brain, basically where our brains get spritzes on certain parts. And the parts aren't that important. The ventral tegmental area has these dopaminergic neurons that spritz dopamine on the nucleus accumbens. We can try to sound smart with all of that, but none of that really matters from a pragmatic standpoint. What we do need to know is how the process works in general. And the way it works is based on these survival mechanisms. So imagine, you know, our ancient ancestors who had two main jobs was to eat and not be eaten. And so they had to eat in the sense, not that they just needed to go to their refrigerators because caves didn't have refrigerators, but they had to find food and then go back and find it again the next day and be efficient at that. So imagine them foraging out in the savannah or the forest or whatever. And when they come upon a food source, if they eat the food, their brain says, lays down this, gets this dopamine spritz that says, hey, remember what you ate and where you found it. And in fact, it takes three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. So the trigger is they see the food, the behaviors, they eat it. And the reward from a neuroscience standpoint is their brain says, gives them this dopamine spritz that says, take a snapshot of this context and of this food so you can come back and do this again. That's positive reinforcement in a nutshell. And that's how we learn things. So this dopamine spritz. Now, that dopamine spritz shifts from that surprise, oh, here's food, to this craving that says, go get food. So we're back in the cave the next day and we already know where it is. We already know where the food is. So our brain says, hey, go get some food. And that's where dopamine fires when we think about, oh, that food that I ate yesterday was good, that triggers us to get this dopamine spritz where we start to crave and it says, go get some food. The main piece here is that this dopamine firing goes from surprise to go get. The reason I mention that is if we think about our phones, I think Cornell West put it that they're weapons of mass distraction, <laughs> right? Because we could set up our phones to surprise us in any number of ways, whether it's a phone call, which is what our phones were originally designed to do back in the day. We hardly ever use them for that anymore. It could be a text. We've set our email to Bing when we get a new email. It could be our social media. It could be LinkedIn. It could be anything. And so every time we set our phones to Bing when there's some alert, we get a surprise. And it's called intermittent reinforcement. It's basically random rewards. So we start to get addicted to our phones. Every time we hear our phone buzz or beep, it starts burning a hole in our pocket because our brain says, hey, who texted you? Or you know, who sent you an email? Or who responded to your social media post? I love that you brought up the reinforcement schedules and they are so important for the masses to understand. Can you just give a very basic explanation of the reinforcement schedules without geeking out too much so that people can know enough to recognize why random reinforcement seems to work and why the casinos use it and why our relationship with cell phones are indicated here? Sure. So this builds on this two-part dopamine firing system. 
So it's surprise and then it's anticipation. So let's use the casinos as an example. They've dialed in the intermittent reinforcement to a T where they know exactly how much money they're going to make on average from somebody by giving them random rewards. Now, imagine if we went to the casino and they were set to fire every 10 times. So first, the slot machines would lose the casino's money and that wouldn't be good for them. And second, it would actually get kind of boring where we would say, okay, I'm on hit number eight. Now I got to pull the lever again. That's number nine. Okay, here comes my reward. Here's 10. You know, it's kind of... of, Totally. It gets boring. Yeah, predictable. Yes, predictable. So the predictable schedules are not set up as a way to get us addicted. They're set up to help us set up habits, actually. We're like, okay, I could not pay attention for those first nine lever pulls. And I could even not pay attention for the 10th one and just know that the cup has to be under the payout slot (laughs) so that, you know, my quarters don't go spilling onto the floor or whatever. So it's set up as a way to help us kind of pay attention when we need to. Most of the world is predictable. Most of our lives are very predictable. We set them up as habits so that we can save that energy to learn new things. And that surprise element, like, oh, wow, that wasn't expected to happen. That's what tells our brain, hey, lay down a new memory. And so it's really basically, if there's something predictable, we don't get that dopamine spritz. If there's something unpredictable, which is why it's called intermittent reinforcement, because you don't It's not regular reinforcement. You're randomly reinforcing or giving some type of a reward. That's what's so sticky for our brains. And it's not nearly as sexy to know that every Friday I get a box of candy rather than to you just don't know when that box of candy is going to come and you don't know what you have to do in order to get it. It shows up and the surprise element seems to be a common denominator, actually, not only with regard to addictions, but with regard to humor. I read a book on the neuroscience of humor, and he basically wrote that what all jokes have in common is a surprise element that causes us to laugh. And we seem to be so oriented towards finding surprise, towards finding novel. One of the reasons I went to see your TED Talk was, what surprise does Judd have for me in his TED Talk? And sure enough, there was a surprise. And I got the dopaminergic hit. And that's obviously a less adverse version, unless it's obviously messing with my life that I get too addicted to TED Talks. But it seems that for our survival, somehow we have overvalued surprise as a relevant criterion for our attention. I think that's one way of looking at it. And I would also say another way that may be involved here is that (laughs) society has figured out that they can commercialize that. Oh, right. And almost in a Voldemort sense, use the dark forces to get us to do what they want us to do. And it might not be what's in our best interest. Yes, it is a great marketing tool because it's the strongest learning mechanism known in all of neuroscience. Can you just operationalize that? Can you describe how that actually takes place in our lives, whether aware of it or not? I mean, Super Bowl Sunday is happening this weekend. I'm sure we're going to see a lot of this in action. Let's use the Super Bowl commercials as an example. Maybe you can think back to some of the commercials. The general categories that I'm thinking of are two. One is humor. Mm -hmm. So there's probably a surprise element of humor. I remember one crazy commercial where they just had some like one of those robot monkeys clinking uh, little symbols together. Uh 
And they did it for like 30 minutes. And the tagline was, wow, I bet you can't believe that we wasted $10 million on this stupid commercial. <laughs> and it was such a surprise to me that I remember. I don't remember what the company was, but I was thinking, wow, that's a brilliant ad. <laughs> it was a surprise. So not only was it funny, but it was also a surprise. And that's probably why I remembered that one because they combined those two together. So there's an example of how somebody monetizes that. And there's something about the disparate nature of our knowledge. Commercials cost a lot and they're spending 30 seconds on just seeing a robotic monkey clinging symbols together. And there's something about the disparate nature of these two ill-matched ideas as being novel and funny. Absolutely. So that's just one example. I'm, I'm sure there are many others as well, but I think people probably get the idea. Yeah. And there's nothing funnier than seeing somebody in a position of authority, you know, with torn pants as he bends over because people in authority are not supposed to have torn pants. But in a similar way, that actually hits on the same centers of the brain when it comes to novelty, when we're engaging in, say, sugar use, which is probably one of our, in addition to our technology, probably one of the most commonly abused substances. Can you describe how something like sugar hits novelty or how it works on our brain in the same way? Well, here, imagine eating a new type of food, something that we've never had before, okay? And there are multiple parts of our GI tract from the mouth to the stomach that actually sense basically caloric content and sugar is a really good source of calories. And so the more sugar there is, the more these dopamine sensors say, hey, wow, this is a surprise. There's a ton of sugar in here. As compared to if we just took a spoonful of sugar and we'd already had sugar, we knew what that was. Wow, right? that makes yeah. so much sense. I've never thought of it that way. So it's really trying to get a sense of how can it maximize its calorie intake. Again, this is our brain that's really back in ancient times where it's saying, I don't know if I'm going to get more food, so I need to pack as many calories in as I can. That's how our brain is set up. So I read somewhere, perhaps this is entirely apocryphal, we like so many things that are circulating, that sugar is up to six times more addicting than other substances. Is that true? Well, I think it probably has to do with how long that meme has been on the internet because <laughs> the first time it's just as addictive, the second time, you know, that's not good enough, so we need to amp it up and now it's twice and now it's six times. So the studies that I've actually read that are actually the scientific studies and not just internet memes are that there was a study in rodents. So you, we have to take this with a grain of salt or sugar, haha, <laughs> is that I think they fed these rodents Oreo cookies or something very sugar laden and then cocaine and they compared the dopamine hit of those. And they found that they were at least equivalent so I don't think six times is quite <laughs> it's probably accurate, though it's probably circulated the internet more than six times and each time it's gone up. <laughs> well, that's a really good point. And it sounds like regardless of the relevance in terms of how addicting it actually is, it is in fact addicting. And it is something that's very available and something that I've experienced an addictive relationship with in that I have had withdrawal, I have had habituation, I've had certain aspects that are kind of considered consistent with telltale signs of addiction. I'm wondering, can a person who might be addicted to, say, sugar, let's stick with sugar now, 
can a person cultivate a relationship with sugar that will not be addictive over time? Or does it have to be an all or nothing proposal where a person actually has to take it out of their lives? Yeah, this is a great question. And in fact, in my clinic, we even have this app called Eat Right Now that helps people work with their relationship to eating. And in that, we have an online community that I moderate so people can ask questions and whatnot. And there is an ongoing discussion around, you know, the should I stay or should I go when it comes to sugar? So is it all or nothing or is there moderation? And what I can say is that it really depends on the individual. Some people feel like they are so addicted to sugar that they just have to stop using it altogether. That's, I would say, a minority of folks. I would say more generally, what we can do is learn to really see what we get from it. And again, it's not just sugar. It's like how it's packaged and delivered. So, you know, it's delivered in the form of a piece of fruit. The effects are very different than if it's delivered in the form of an Oreo cookie or something that's really optimized to be addictive or a cookie that's basically all sugar. And we can really look to see, like, can we dial it in? What's it like to eat something that's just super sugar laden versus not? Let's use a concrete example. So I'm thinking of chocolate. Chocolate's a good one because you can dial up the amount of sugar in it or dial it down. So milk chocolate has a lot more sugar than dark chocolate. And I've actually done this experiment myself and as have a, a lot of other people is to see what is it like to eat milk chocolate? And for me, it's very sweet and it makes me want to have another bite to the point where it could be pretty easy to eat a whole bar of milk chocolate, you know, just because it just drives that process. I've seen the same thing with fresh baked cookies where it's like, I eat a cookie, it's delicious. I immediately want to eat another one and I want to eat another one. And it's just that cravogenic process is really pretty strong. Whereas when I dial down the sugar and dial up the chocolate content, when I get to 60%, that drive is much less and tastes great. And for me, it even tastes better. And then when I dial it up a little bit more, like 70%, that drive to eat more is almost even more minimized. And so I can just watch as I dial down the sugar and just keep the chocolate the same. Now, of course, it's going to taste slightly different, but I can eat one or two squares, truly enjoy them, not feel like I've got to devour them and I'm anticipating (laughs) the next square. But it's like, oh, there's this nuance. I can just let it melt in my mouth. And then I can stop with a couple, a couple of squares as compared to a couple of bars. And I think that has a lot to do with the awareness piece, helping us see what am I getting when I eat milk chocolate? Well, it just, it's not actually as satisfying because I just want more. Whereas with dark chocolate, it's very satisfying, at least for me. Sure. And less can be more if it's done mindfully, which really dovetails nicely with a lot of what you're about. You've really kind of come to the epicenter of mindfulness as a way of dealing with our brain's shortcomings around addiction and craving and that instead of the cookie monster approach for those of you who remember on sesame street the way he would eat cookies he would just take in a huge quantity of cookies not even tasting them and i don't even think he had a throat when i would watch (laughs) he did not have a throat that's right he would just just eat them and they would come out the side of his mouth so he could eat as many as he wanted 
That's right. <laughs> he wasn't even ingesting the cookies. But for many of us, we do eat that way with the assumption that we will fill a hole. And I'm wondering, what are the holes that we're trying to fill from your vantage point? And how might mindfulness actually address that? So there are many holes that I think we're trying to fill. So if we go back to this mechanism, the survival mechanism that says, hey, remember what you ate and where you found it. This mechanism also is at play through a process called negative reinforcement, which basically says if there's something painful, avoid that pain. And then that feels better than having the pain. So with emotions, a lot of emotions can be painful. It could be as simple as boredom. Boredom's not that pleasant for people. They get this restless itch to do something. They could be depressed. They could be anxious. They could be stressed, whatever. And what we can learn is that if we're stressed and we eat something, especially some sugar-laden substance that says, yummy, 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 eating that gives us that brief relief that helps us avoid that feeling, that unpleasant emotion. It doesn't fix it. It just gives us this brief relief. I'll give you an example. I had a patient in my outpatient clinic who came to me. She was referred for binge eating disorder. This is this at its extreme. And she said when she was a kid, her mom started emotionally abusing her and she learned that she could eat food as a way. And I I think this is a direct quote, as a way to numb herself. She said, I could numb myself with food. And so that just started ramping up and up and up to the point where when she came to see me, she was at a very unhealthy weight and was binging 20 out of 30 days a month on entire large pizzas because she had to get more and more to get that brief relief. On top of that, she would feel guilty about her binging often. And that guilt would trigger her to binge again, like a binge on top of a binge. So there's an example of how extreme this can get where we've learned to eat, not because we're hungry, that's called homeostatic hunger, But because we're angry, we're sad, we're lonely, that's hedonic hunger. So good. And what you're describing is that process through which we begin to enter a shame spiral, as I see it, that kind of guilt. I feel like I made a mistake, shame, I am a mistake. And it then becomes reinforcing in that we continue to feed ourselves with the unhealthful substance in order not to feel what we were feeling. And then the problem just grows and grows and grows. And I'm wondering how shame plays a role in this and what can be done about that? Because we often feel like, wow, it must be a crack in my character that I'm eating so much. I must be a bad person. I'm gluttonous. Yes. I'm I'm engaging in one of the sins. Uh, (laughs) Right. One of the seven moral sins is gluttony, right? Yeah. So if you think of guilt, for example, often I like this differentiation between shame and guilt. Guilt is we feel bad about something we've done. And shame is we feel bad about who we are. And -hmm. I think that's the way I'm hearing you describe that as well. So if we think of these shame spiral or these guilt habit loops work the same way. So just like I talked about my patient who felt guilty about binging, and then she would binge because she felt guilty. So we can see how guilt habit loops get set up. And we can see the same thing about shame. So let's say the trigger is we think about something, one of our characters or character flaws, quote unquote, we think, sure. they're, oh, think something about ourselves. 
it feels unpleasant. There's a nice trigger that says, hey, well, one, why don't you eat something and make yourself feel better? So that could be a shame eating spiral. Or we could beat ourselves up and say, oh, you're a bad person. Yeah, you know, and we just pile it on where we judge ourselves. And that self-judgment, we might think, well, how is that rewarding to our brain? Well, it feels like we're doing something. So even though we've got this character flaw, quote unquote, it's, well, I've got this flaw. I'm going to do something about it and I'm going to beat myself up because that's the only thing I can do. And that's erroneously something that we come to the conclusion that must be virtuous in the face of this lack of virtue. At least I won't feel good about myself. At least I'll beat up on myself. And that's highly flawed. And you and I both are, I believe, fans of Chris Germer, who talks a lot about self-compassion. Can you talk about how self-compassion might be useful and how to actually engage our, our self-compassion muscles in the face of this shame cycle? So here, first, understanding the process is critical. I think of this as if we don't know how our minds work, we can't possibly work with our minds. And so there are many ways that we can get stuck in these habit loops. So knowing that is the first step. Mapping it out is the first step. The second step is really looking at the reward value. So this is the only way to change any habit is to really help our brains update how rewarding that behavior is now. So often we've set up a behavior. It's a habit. You know, It's got set up sometime in the past. And this might sound heretical to other psychiatrists, but the past is actually not as critical as the present for changing any type of behavior. So it's not about having somebody sit on my couch and talk about their childhood and try to figure out why they set up the habit. Habit's there. And so it's about what can we do about it now? Mm -hmm. Okay. And what we can do about it is tap into these elements of reward-based learning. It's called reward-based learning because we will keep doing a behavior if it is still rewarding. Now, if it's a habit, it's a good time to check in and see, hey, is this outdated? Is the reward still there? I'll give you an example and then we'll get to self-kindness. So my lab did a study. This was led by Veronique Taylor, one of my postdocs, where we took our Eat Right Now app and then we embedded this tool that we call the craving tool to help people pay attention as they overate. And the theory behind this was, well, if you look at the equations for behavior change, they have everything to do with an error term called positive or negative prediction error. So if we've set something up as a habit, we kind of set up how rewarding it is and we don't pay attention. We just do the behavior. So if we're beating ourselves up, we just keep beating ourselves up. We don't pay attention to whether it's rewarding or not. Same is true for overeating. Many people just set up the habit of overeating, whether it's the clean plate club as a kid or whatever. Right. And then they just overeat. They finish their plate and they don't pay attention. So what we have people do is we have them pay attention as they overeat and really look at that reward value simply by bringing awareness to it, like asking them, how content do you feel afterwards? And what we find, this blew me away. What we found was that it only took 10 or 15 times of somebody using this craving tool as they went through our Eat Right Now app for that reward value to drop below zero and for them to start changing their behavior. We just published this in a good scientific journal. That's how strong it is. So whether it's eating or beating ourselves up, we have to pay attention to the results of the behavior. 
And if we can see very clearly that it is not rewarding, we start to become disenchanted with the behavior. Notice how this isn't about telling ourselves not to beat ourselves up. It's not about telling ourselves not to overeat. Everybody's tried that. It doesn't work. It's not how our brains work. It's about paying attention, seeing how rewarding it is right now and linking that up. Oh, beating myself up is not rewarding. Now, what that does is that opens the space. And this goes all the way back to Buddhist psychology. We've even written papers about this. The Buddha scooped any modern day scientist. He figured this out before paper was even invented, <laughs> right? So this was described in ancient times, actually as a way to end suffering. Like that's how strong this process is. You bring awareness in, you become disenchanted and you stop doing it because it's not that exciting, you know, because you're not excited to do it anymore. The next piece is to bring in something better. I think of it as the, the bigger, better offer. I write a bit about this in my Unwinding Anxiety book, where it's like, first step, mapping out these habit loops like we've talked about. Second step is really asking these questions. What am I getting from this? If I overeat, what do I get from this? If I beat myself up, what do I get from this? Right? And feeling into our direct experience, not thinking about it, but really feeling it because our feeling bodies are so much stronger than our thinking brains. The third step is bringing in that bigger, better offer. And that involves, let's go back to Chris Germer and others. Well, what does it feel like when we are kind to ourselves? And if we can't even feel into that because we're not in the habit of being kind to ourselves, what's it feel like when somebody else is kind to us? How does it feel when somebody's kind to us versus when somebody is mean to us? To our brains, it's a no-brainer. Kindness wins every time. So if we beat ourselves up and we start asking this question, what am I getting when I beat myself up? How does this feel in my body when I beat myself up? We can start to become disenchanted with it because it doesn't feel good. And then we can start experimenting with kindness. Oh, well, if it feels good when others are kind to me, how does it feel when I'm kind to myself? Oh, and we start to get a taste of that. And then that can become our new habit. Why? Because it's more rewarding. It's interesting how you're describing a visceral experience as being so much more profound than a cerebral one. So we can say continued use despite adverse consequences, or we can actually feel mm. that fact. And when you say that, and we feel it in our viscera, that it's far more instructive to us and it actually can create a better playbook for our future selves. You're also describing parenthetically how people might become addicted to an abusive relationship, especially when the rewards are intermittent, like, oh, but when he loves me, he loves me so well. Most of the time he's horrible to me, but there are those moments. And I would think that these principles come into play and that one of the great things about psychotherapy is making a person more aware of the cost benefit analysis and what you're describing in your beautifully named app, Eat Right Now, which is a great pun. It really causes a person to check in with their bodies. And that's really what we need to do. The old joke, which you probably have heard is, you know, the patient comes into the doctor and the patient says, doctor, it hurts when I do this with my hand. And the doctor says, of course, stop doing that with your hand. And we're all doing that on some level because erroneously, we think the immediate rewards of the sugar is going to outweigh the headache I'm going to get or the shame bath I'll take later on. Is that consistent with you just kind of being 
in the now in a bad way versus the mindful way, which is being in the now in a good way. Yeah. And I would even say the mindfulness is about being aware in the now in a non-judgmental way. And that's right. I'm sorry. I used the word good. I meant healthful. Yeah. And like you're saying, we can move the judgments to the side and we can just use the awareness and the curiosity to see what's actually happening right now. And if we put our hand on a stove and we burn ourselves, that learning that stoves are hot is not judgment. It's just like, oh yeah, stoves are hot. Maybe I shouldn't put my hand on them. We can certainly beat ourselves up. Why did I do this? What is my death wish? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But that's all superfluous. That's not really involved in the learning process. And in the same way, mindfulness helps us really just see clearly what we're doing. And instead of getting in our own way by telling ourselves we're a bad person for doing it or whatever, we just get right to the heart of the matter and say, oh, that wasn't helpful. Oh, I might stop doing that. And that actually helps. (laughs) Wow, that's so good. I'm wondering for the sake of the listener, what are some other addictions that people might not even recognize as being addictions that you've kind of been able to bring to the surface that may actually have adverse effects on our lives? Well, distraction, we touched on that lightly, but I'll just highlight that as a trending one. So distraction, and we could name the myriad ways that we can distract ourselves these days. I would add to that, we can be addicted to ourselves. That may be obvious to some people. YouTube should really be renamed MeTube. We're really just you know, posting about ourselves. And if you look at social media, even Twitter, it's supposed to be an information spreading platform, but it's really about me talking about what I had for lunch. But that's rewarding to people, especially if they get a bunch of likes. So we can get addicted to that. We can get addicted to ourselves in so many ways, you know, far into that spectrum's narcissism. And I would say the way we can also get addicted to wanting to have a self, the opposite of that, the opposite end of that spectrum is borderline personality disorder. I'm not a huge fan of these terminologies of disorder, this and that, but for those that are familiar with that term, basically people don't have a stable sense of self. And so they can be jonesing for a stable sense of self or a stable relationship or some type of stability in their world when often they've been living in a very unstable and unpredictable world. And those are some of the things that can predispose people in that way. Another one I would say is just an addiction to thinking where I'll be the first to raise not just one, but both of my hands in terms of falling into that. I remember being on month-long silent meditation retreats where the idea is to be learning about my mind and working with my mind. And here I am sitting in the, my brain's like, oh, that's a great idea for a research project. Why don't you <laughs> up and write that down? And it literally took me a couple of days to figure out like, wait a minute, my brain's just trying to keep me from sitting. (laughs) So it's so easy. You know, I started labeling it the world's greatest idea. And it's like, wow, none of these are actually great when I go back and look at them. But I had to see them to see like, oh, my brain just loves to think. And I think that's the case for a lot of us. And in the moment, it felt like the world's greatest idea. But upon further analysis, uh, maybe not so much. Yeah, but. There was a part of your brain that was almost saying, stay relevant with this idea. And I think that we all fear irrelevance. You talked about it as being a driver in social media. I see it all the time with regard to people's sense of self with regard to their profession or any other way. And it sounds like 
it was kind of the relevance reflex that was showing up in your brain in that moment, causing you to overthink because your thinking has actually gotten you very far. It's gotten you an MD and a PhD. It's gotten you international acclaim. And so during this silent retreat, you're thinking on some level, I got to stay relevant. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have to say, I wrote a little bit about this in The Craving Mind. I was blown away by an episode of This American Life, you know, the host Ira Glass. Totally. I loved it when you talked about this. Yeah. So I was interviewing these young women, they're eighth grade, ninth grade, and they're just talking in such savvy terms about having to stay relevant on social media, like it's a job. So I think this point about relevance is really relevant. Is there anything I should have asked, but haven't yet asked? Wow, great question. I think we've covered so much, although I will put in one final plug for two of my favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. I promise not to sing. There are only two (laughs) of them. And one of them we've touched on, which is kindness. And I say that because it can not only, I've seen this in my clinic, I've seen this in my research studies, seen this personally how kindness can transform our lives and help us shift out of judgment, whether we're judging others or ourselves and into a much better way of being with ourselves and and other people. So just a plug for kindness. I would encourage everyone to experiment liberally with kindness. And the other one is curiosity. I think we touched on it a tiny bit, but really I think of curiosity as a superpower, this attitudinal quality of mindfulness, but really forget the term mindfulness. Just think about curiosity. How does curiosity feel compared to worrying when we're stuck in an anxiety habit loop? How does curiosity feel compared to a craving when we're stuck jonesing for something? It really is a superpower. And I'll just say, even in our studies, we've gotten five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking cessation. We just published a study with our Unwinding Anxiety app where we got a 67% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in people with generalized anxiety disorder. So this stuff works. And it's really these two flavors. You don't need 31 flavors of well-being. I would say you know that root flavor of all of these is the two root flavors are curiosity and kindness. You're speaking my language and I feel a real strong affiliation with you as you describe those two characteristics. Interestingly, on Sunday night, when asked, what would the class be that I would integrate into the school system? And my answer was kindness. Another one would be curiosity. I would love to know, because I always ask this last kind of fantastical question. I'm going to embed what you just said into it. If you could somehow confer upon all humanity the ability to dial up their kindness and curiosity, how do you imagine it would benefit the individual as well as society at large? It would transform society at such a fundamental level that I'm not even sure we could, well, some people can fathom this, but many people could not even fathom it. I think You know, the Dalai Lama was quoted as saying, if we ended anger, all war would end in one generation or something like that. And so that's how strong curiosity and kindness are. Imagine taking all the resources that this world has devoted to war, even in a year, and taking all of the monetary and time and human resources and just 
turning those toward climate change would solve it. Totally. And with the kindness, we would all work together to do it and realize how fun it is to work together as compared to trying to compete or beat each other up. And how it so feeds the good neurons that we, I shouldn't say the good again, the, the neurons that we <laughs> wish to feed. <laughs> and that leads towards really fulfilling lives. Mm, what a beautiful prayer. Well, on that profundity, I just want to say, Judd, I am beyond grateful that you've shared your time with me and my listeners. This has been a blast and I look forward to geeking out to your work even more. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Right on. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 